From New York City, the Comedy Cellar and Rethink Production present Live from America Podcast. We will make America great again. How about new, you crazy Dutch bastard? Live from America Podcast. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created. No, 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 no. Excuse me. Just so you understand. We can't be the stupid country anymore. Live from America podcast. I believe we can keep the promise of our founding. The idea that if you're willing to work hard, it doesn't matter who you are or where you come from or what you look like or where you love. It doesn't matter whether you're black or white or Hispanic or Asian or Native American or young or old or rich or poor, able, disabled, gay or straight. You can make it here in America if you're willing to try. It's just words, folks. It's just words. This is Live from America Podcast with Noam Dorman and Haddon Gab. Before we start, can we just, I, I don't know why we never did this, but can we start an email? Like if, if you have if co- questions or comments about this podcast or as Hot Sam calls it, a podcast, uh, please, well, let's make it live from America at ComedyCellar.com. I'll set that up live yeah. from America at ComedyCellar.com. We do have a Gmail set up already, or do you want to use the Comedy Cellar? We have a yeah. Gmail set up already? Yeah, but well, we I, can use that. Do we get emails? Sure, yeah, we do. We, we never more, announce more, it. Mostly from Afghanistan asking for green card. <laughs> I'm not even joking. Let's ch- let's change it to a Comedy Cellar. It's cooler, right? Yeah, yeah. Live from America at ComedyCellar.com, and I'll make sure that um, since you didn't, I know you didn't set me up, but I'll, I'll I'll have a forwarder so it goes to everybody. Live from America, I'll set up an alias. Live from America at commiesell.com. Okay, go ahead. Introduce the show. Of course, uh, the Jews want to take over yeah. go ahead. everything <laughs> that I do. And then later, he's going to say, no, we, I, I did the show first. Mm-hmm. Not negotiating. You know how it goes. So anyway, uh, welcome to Live from America podcast. Podcast uh, from the Comedy Cellar, number one comedy club in the world. And uh, Noam Dorman is here, of course. Depot, Yo. Mr. Stephen Calabria, uh, a booker, producer, comedian, Tony Darrow, our regular, and he did the very first episode with us, right? Really? Yeah, he did. I don't remember. The, uh, the ones before you were canceled. Um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Mr. Michael Weiss, he I'm like is... Jesus of the <laughs> been resurrected. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Michael Weiss, he's a senior editor at the uh, Daily Beast, uh, wow. CNN, and he is a co-author of New York Times bestseller, uh, the romantic novel ISIS Inside the Army of Terror. It's a self-help book. Actually. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the show. And actually, he's one of the guys that I follow on CNN the whole time. Did you know that? I didn't. Know I that. was keeping that to 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 say to get your reaction. I, I don't think it gives but... him comfort knowing that you're following people. <laughs> not not following in terms of like watching what, where he goes and you know stuff like that. But actually, his opinion. And he he you know he um. He's very opinionated about the Middle East. He knows a lot about Russia, you know. So um, let me introduce you to everybody. Noam is a Trump supporter. I'm he not does, a Trump supporter. He no. doesn't. He's you a know. Trump apologist. <laughs> Maybe. He's a Trump I'm, I'm sympathizer. A, I'll tell you what I am. Like I'll tell you what I am. I'm a Trump. Oh, yeah. I'm a Trump defense attorney, meaning that I think that everybody should uh, be convicted on what they actually have said and done, and they, they're entitled to they have their their uh, the best defense. Even in the intellectual marketplace, but go ahead. Yeah, 
Uh, he's also a Jew, which we don't like. All right, enough with that. Come on. <coughs> what? <laughs> this is what the show is about. This is how it started like the whole thing. fixated on this already. <laughs> you already started. Boy. You know how many times it occurs to me he doesn't say it out loud? <laughs> <laughs> I actually just say it here in the show. It's like, See? It's like so Trump therapy. got elected. These people, just they just feel like, you know, there's no filter anymore. You know, I sometimes I wonder if somebody, like, doesn't know me, like, well, if they hear me say that all the time. Yeah. You know, what they're going to think? They're going to think that they know you very well. <laughs> There's actually an ice van parked outside the street right now. Oh, yeah. No, I, I understand. But, you know, I have my citizenship, thank God. So, uh, yeah, welcome to the show, Michael. And uh, we want to discuss uh, a few of your books because you know ice very well. What This book is different because you went inside, correct? I went you know, into Syria, yeah. uh, but this was before the rise of ISIS. So I was yeah. in Aleppo. Talk, talk close. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, okay. um, yeah, I was in Aleppo in the summer of 2012, uh -huh. Ramadan actually, before ISIS had really shown itself on the ground. I mean, they were there and they were kind of building networks and running jihadi training camps, but I didn't see any of that. This was when yeah. I was in a town called Al-Bab, um, which is about an hour's drive north of the western district of Aleppo that the then Free Syrian Army had taken from the Assad regime. I uh, spent the night there, drove in with them in a convoy, which to this day I can't When, when tell you say them, you mean who? The Free Syrian Army, okay. not ISIS. <laughs> okay. I wouldn't be sitting here if I had driven with them. Okay. Um, and yeah, I just witnessed what was then a, a very hopeful and optimistic uh, revolution. Talked to people, locals on the ground in Aleppo City and Al Bab. Uh, there was a sense of ebullience because for them the main enemy was the regime, right? Yeah. There wasn't ebullience means like really ha happiness. Like, oh, yeah. go ahead. We're very glad. We, we, good. Tr yeah. we try to explain to Stephen. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> um, yeah, they had their nachas, you know. Nachas. Um, so you know, yeah. Arabic is very good. That's Hebrew, but no, I know. But uh, I'm saying, that, yeah, I, <laughs> no, it's a joke. Yeah, um, but anyway, uh, yeah, like Thomas, you know, we stole that too from you guys. Yeah. Um, no, it was it was a completely different uh, state of affairs from what we now think of. I mean, this is the to me the, the the tragedy of Syria is twofold. There's the humanitarian catastrophe of it all, and then there's the struggle for the memory and the actual history of the conflict. People yeah. now think this is all just about terror and jihadis and headloppers. And that's not at all how it started. And there are a lot of good people who got kind of ground between these two uh, millstones of a brutal totalitarian government and a brutal totalitarian movement, namely ISIS. So yeah. for my purpose, I mean, and, and the, the reason we did the book was to sort of explain this is not an organization that came from nowhere. This is not an organization that sort of uh, spontaneously burst on the scene. I mean, it's been around for almost two decades, since the start of the Iraq war. Actually, if you want to be technical, I mean, it branded itself as a form of Al-Qaeda in Iraq, so therefore you can go back even further and mm -hmm. say it's been around for decades. Um, and it will, we argue, continue to be with us even as the so-called caliphate is shrunk and dismantled. So don't get to, I mean, you know, my problem with the way the U.S. government is sort of trying to miseducate the American population is, is it's mistaking uh, you know, cheerleading for a real sober assessment of the threat that we face. They call this the forever war for a reason. And some of the mistakes we're making in our policy and in, in how we fight ISIS are going to lay the conditions for the rise of, if not ISIS, then ISIS 2.0. <laughs> you know, some, some other version of what they claim to represent, which is, I mean, uh. we look at them in the West and we're like, okay, look, they're messianic, they're blood brutal, they're religious crazies, they want to usher in the end of the world and all. 
I see Sound it. like the Hasids, but go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> I see it much more um, in political materialist terms, right? Um, yeah. This is a fundamentally, this is about Sunni revanchism, about recapturing the glory of the Sunni Muslim Ummah, which for them, um, I mean, well, it depends on how far back in history you want to go, but for them, it really started, it accelerated when the U.S. went into Iraq, deposed Saddam in the mind of ISIS and, and actually plenty of other Iraqis and also Syrians, handed the country to Iran, which is Shia, mm -hmm. on a silver platter. And then the the real kind of quickening of it all was after five years, or at the time, three, three and a half years of horrific war crimes by Assad, who is Alawite and therefore part of a schismatic sect of Shia Islam, the U.S. did nothing to intervene. So in their mind, in their kind of feverish conspiracy theory explanation of the world, the U.S. is in bed with Russia and Iran and all the Shia to kill all the Sunnis. Now you sit here and you think, well, that just sounds crazy. But actually, if you go to the region, and I have, and report, it, 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 it's actually a very compelling explanation for why the United States keeps fucking up this part of the world. And the danger with ISIS is not that people love ISIS. It's that they agree with ISIS's geopolitical analysis. Mm -hmm. And therefore, that makes them susceptible to joining organizations and movements like this. So, so what about Jordan? I mean, Jordan. In the mic, in the mic, in the mic. Oh, sorry. What about Jordan? I mean, the United States hasn't made any, um, you know, we probably have the best relationship with any country in the Middle East that we have with Jordan. But for ISIS, you know, all of the all of the uh, Sunni majority or Sunni-led uh, countries, including, by the way, Turkey, which is an Arab, um, these are all degraded, defunct um, apostate regimes. They do not uh, embody the true path and the true no. version of Islam. So for them, I mean, remember, they burnt the Jordanian pilot alive in a cage and their rationale for doing it. And everybody was fixated on the violent pornography of seeing this guy go up in flames. But if you watch the entire video, after, or actually before that event, there's this whole prologue which shows, and again, I, I just want to emphasize, I'm not trying to justify mm -hmm. what they do. I'm trying to explain how they sell it to their constituency. There's this whole prologue which shows that uh, this guy was part of this dastardly coalition made up of the Zionist and uh, imperialist American West the Iranian uh, Rafida, which they use as a bigoted term to describe all Shia, um, and the uh, the Tawgit, or uh, you know uh, what they would refer to as the excessive or essentially corrupted Arab regimes, which do not really you know represent the true Islam. And they show this guy and his other fellow Arab pilots dropping bombs on women and children. Now. That's propaganda, of course, but for them, it's an eye for an eye form of justice. So they go after, remember, they go after Sunni Muslims first and foremost. You either bend the knee to them and submit to their will or join wholeheartedly their ranks, or you die. And only then do they turn their ire on Western targets or on other countries in the region. I mean, that's why the sort of... The, and that's the, different than Al-Qaeda. Right. Well, you know, Al-Qaeda, the, the, the chief difference between the two organizations, and, and again, ISIS was a, was a, a branch of Al-Qaeda as of 2004, when the founder of what was then known as Al-Qaeda in Iraq, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, pledged allegiance to bin Laden. Uh, but there was always a moral and intellectual uh, argument, believe it or not, mm -hmm. uh, which made Al-Qaeda seem like the, the kittenish jihadist <laughs> movement. Uh, no, truly, because uh, Zarqawi was pathologically committed to genocide of all the Shia. Yeah. He wanted to foment this sectarian civil war in the region 
with Sunnis who outnumber Shia worldwide, just basically destroying all Shia Islam. And bin Laden and some of the intellectual architects of Al-Qaeda thought that this was sheer madness. The real enemy was the, the, the far enemy, namely yeah. the United States, the West, and then its allies, and of course Israel. And um, So there was always this kind of uh, friction. Yeah. Um, but Zarqawi, his movement as of 2006 was financially bigger and more successful than global Al-Qaeda. Clearly on the battlefield, even though it sustained many losses, I mean, Mosul, Fallujah, these are cities that have changed hands between ISIS and a U.S.-backed Iraqi government multiple times, going back further than mm -hmm. 2014 when we went to war again. Um, they have been really the, the sort of at the vanguard of, of global jihad. And now we see this being played out in the streets of Paris and Brussels um, and Barcelona. Yeah. And so they're competing with Al-Qaeda as the kind of the cool jihad. What a cheerful overview. Al-Qaeda seems... Aren't they like the corporate I, entity you, now? Yeah, yeah they're, they're sort of your, the grandfather. So straight Tony talking like... Sorry. No, I mean, because aren't they... Aren't we pretty much fighting alongside Al-Qaeda in Yemen now? Aren't we sort of on the... No, I mean, we're fighting... Same side? No, I mean, the, the, the forces... Of the websites were, you read, but... Yeah. yeah. Forces we're fighting <laughs> alongside in Yemen, which is essentially a Saudi-led war that we're right. enabling and, and militarily and logistically supporting. They're fighting Al-Qaeda, but they're also primarily their target of the Houthi rebels, right, which but, are backed by Iran. Um, but aren't Al-Qaeda fighting uh, alongside uh, Saudi? Yes, but also they're fighting the government that the Saudis are right. backing. But so in, in essence, we're, you know, and we're backing the Saudis. Are you, are you referring to that article that Nick, Nicholas Kristof wrote in the Times where he had all the, the, uh, the those faces of all the people dying? I don't read Nicholas. No, I, go ahead. I'll, I'll uh, no, I will not. I don't. Yeah, look, I mean, there's a lot, the, the sort of your Tom Friedman breakdown of the Middle East, uh, you know, and, and you see a lot of this actually being circulated in policy uh, spheres in, in Washington, so on, is, you know, Saudi bad, Iran good, uh, the Gulf Arab states are the source for all of our problems. We have 15 out of 19 hijackers on 9-11 came from Saudi Arabia. It's a very good book I'm reading now, actually, called The Exile, which uh, there's never been a book like this published, to my mind. It's an, an inside perspective of Al-Qaeda in the months leading up to 9-11 and then the aftermath after the World Trade Center was taken down and then the invasion of Afghanistan and the crumbling of their sort of nation patron and the Taliban. And, you know, one of the points the authors make is, look, they, first of all, there was a dispute within Al-Qaeda about the wisdom of doing this planes operation in the first mm -hmm. place. Many thought it was complete madness. Bin Laden was sold by the architect of it, KSM, the Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Um, and uh, why did the 15 out of 19 hijackers come from Saudi Arabia? Because the U.S. has a relationship with Saudi Arabia, and therefore it was easier for them to get visas to come into the United States. So it doesn't necessarily mean that Saudi is behind all the evil and all the jihad that's happening in the Middle East. Uh, and look, I mean, I, I the Saudis. That, no, I know, but, but I mean, this are, is. Uh, <laughs> it, but this is this is the thing. You know, people say, well, Saudi is working with. Like, there is absolutely no. You saw this in the Times. I can't see that. Uh, go ahead. Go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt, but this is about the, this is the photos U.S. and Saudi Arabia doesn't want you to see. Young, it's all Yem, young Yemeni Oh, yeah. Well, boys. The, the Saudis he, are committing war crimes, and we're, right, but, we're and, and he's blaming. He's saying that we're complicit in we it. We are complicit we are, in okay. it. I mean, I would argue we're, we're complicit in the tragedy in Syria as well, because, I mean, you know. Well, no, kind of agree with that, I believe. Yeah. We're complicit in a lot of horrific things that are happening, not just in the Middle East, but all over the world. And Europe. I mean, uh, more, yeah. I'd say more so. I, I don't know anything about Saudi. I shouldn't say more so. In Syria, we were, I don't know what the word complicit means, but 
we we sat we we twiddled our thumbs. We we allowed it to happen. We did nothing. We well, talked. We also and, destabilized and, the country by invading Iraq. And, I mean, and millions. Then, right. But, but, you know, but like Colin Powell said, you break it, you own it. And then we just went home and said, well, it was not our problem, which is I. I yeah, they went into that's Iraq. stunning to me. They thought it would have a domino effect across the Middle East. It did, but not the one they were going for. Yeah, that's but right. whatever, whatever. But I, this is this is this was. I don't mean to to just totally change the subject. But my big problem with Obama was that it seemed to me that he felt that the moral responsibility of the United States kind of reset when he took office, and that whatever happened prior. He didn't have to worry about that because he wasn't in office when it happened. So that the United States of America goes in there, makes a mess. And rather than saying, listen, we made a mess. We can't. Now, we, now we're responsible for, for, for minimizing and mitigating the damage of this mess. He's like, no, I didn't make that mess. I was, I was actually against it. So we're all going home. No. And then 450,000 dead Syrians. I don't agree with that at all. I you mean, don't have to agree with it. But every guest we've had from Syria has agreed with it. I'll yeah. tell you that. But let, go ahead. Let the expert. Well, you know, I think Obama had one overarching foreign policy objective which was, in the near term, this Iranian nuclear accord, right? I mean, Ben Rhodes, his advisor for strategic communications on national security or whatever the hell the title was, likened this to uh, the term two version of Obamacare. So this was going to be the signature achievement of this administration. But the rider in that agreement, as I would call it, was a kind of creeping rapprochement between the United States and Iran. Obama wanted to end... 25 plus years of Cold War between the Islamic Republic and the United States. And in that, I think he was fundamentally naive because it's true that, you know, Iran is a very complicated and multifarious country and there are people who are devoutly pro-Western and philo-American in many respects and, and I would say in greater number than we would find in some of our so-called allies in other parts of the, the region. But the, the, the ascendant force in Iran now and the one that's wreaking havoc all over the region are decidedly not pro-American. They are decidedly anti-American. They actually domiciled the senior al-Qaeda leadership after the collapse of, of the Taliban. You can also read that in the exile, by the way. And it's it's known as the Revolutionary Guard Corps of Iran, particularly the Quds Force, which is their foreign expeditionary arm. Just to be clear, so I understand, are they anti-American? Are they anti-Western? Are they just anti-anybody who's not Islamic? What What is it really? Because they have a, it, doesn't they, seem, it seems more than anti-American because they're blowing up Europe right and left. Well, so, that, blowing up Europe, you're referring to ISIS. I'm, you know, Iran is a different kettle of fish. But, well, isn't ISIS, isn't Iran, doesn't Iran equally support terrorists who turn their sights on Europe? As I mean, in other words, is it America no, or is ISIS. it the West? The middle, the middle East is, uh, it, it's sort of Wonderland in the Alice in Wonderland sense. Uh, there's no such thing as permanent enemies, only ex-friends. So the IRGC, at one point, struck a sort of strategic relationship with Al Qaeda after they fled from Afghanistan and said. We'll host you here because we like what you're doing to the United States. And when Iraq looked like it was going down, meaning Bush was going to invade, they said, we're, we're going to get you out of this country and you can all go to Iraq and kill American soldiers once they get there. Uh, in that sense, they're very cynical and bloody minded and, and you know, an enemy of the U.S. Um, but as of now, Iran is using the declaration of the caliphate and using the war against ISIS primarily to pursue its own agenda in the region, which is the expansion of its empire. And they're doing this in a way that has been unprecedented since 1979 when Khomeini took power in Tehran. And you talk about Yemen, for instance. I mean, they're backing the Houthis in Yemen because they want Saudi Arabia to, to lose that country. Uh, they're sowing, I mean, I can't even call it unrest. They are responsible in the 
facilitation and financing and arming of various militia groups in Iraq, the so-called good guys that we have been on the side of, in some cases given close air support to in the fight against ISIS, which have committing all kinds of atrocities and war crimes comparable to what ISIS does to other uh, Arabs and other Sunnis. So you just don't see this on the nightly news because they're not the enemy. You know, I mean, our agenda is set from the top. And this, admin this administration is a little more hawkish on Iran, but truly there is not much daylight between what Obama was doing and what Trump was doing. In rhetoric there is. Trump hates Iran. He wants to tear up the deal. He hasn't done that. And if you look at the dynamics in Iraq and Syria, it's just a continuation of the Obama policy. Now, I agree with you, though. Obama wanted to sort of reset everything. And his folly was not taking into account, look, for better or for worse, the last eight years under Bush happened. We did go into Iraq. That's my point. And you can't just pack up and leave and say, right, you're a sovereign democratic nation now. You sort out your problems. That was... And everybody within his administration told him not to. He gave a speech in which he said exactly that when Ariel Maliki came to Washington, D.C. But remember, he did try to leave... He, he wanted to leave troops there, which I thought would have been a mistake. Uh, he wanted to leave troops there, but the Iraqi parliament listen, voted it down. Tony, he had a status of status this, of forces agreement. This is, this, he had to take those troops this down. This is related because, to my... I mean, this, look, you have to understand the... Can, can, can I, can I, sure. This is my related to my Trump defense thing. Right. Panetta, in his book, said... He was, he was his defense secretary, right? His right. He said Obama did it as a pretext... He knew he would get rejected. He never wanted a, He never wanted the status well, force agreement. If Panetta says that, I don't need to know what Tony Darrell thinks about it. And you, and well, you what? and if you don't want to believe that that it was true, you have to have some reason to believe this rather than just I would really but that prefer he used it as, that he wanted to take the troops out. And use they it could have had a status of forces way, agreement if he'd wanted right, it. And, he would and have. The way it worked was uh, the administration decided to lowball the figure of U.S. troops knowing that Nouri al-Maliki could not go to Iraqi parliament and get that passed. If they had said the America wants to leave more troops and a, a force contingent behind to stabilize the country and secure the gains we made, Maliki might have gone to bat against the more dominant Shia forces in parliament. But, you know, uh, they weren't going to ask Maliki to, cap to sacrifice his political capital for the U.S. on the basis of 3,500 or 5,000 troops. So it was a calculation made by the administration. But worse than that, I would argue, forget about the military disengagement. There is fundamentally a political stupidity in America. We, we essentially helped Maliki steal an election, an election he lost. He and didn't by, win the election. He did not win the election. Yeah. And by rights, according to the Iraqi constitution, which, by the way, we helped them write, <laughs> the, 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 the winning party had first crack at forming a government. Now, it's true, one could argue, Arakia, the coalition... Uh, that won the election might not have assembled a, a, a governing coalition and might not have actually come to power. But they had the chance to do that. And Joe Biden and other advisors in the administration said, no, 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 we're backing Maliki. And that's that. And that was that was folly. Maliki was an oppressive, repressive thug, also corrupt. He's stolen billions of dollars from the Iraqi people, was enthralled to Iran and ended up waging anti-Sunni pogroms, which created the conditions for the return of ISIS. Remember, the very people in Iraq who partnered with the U.S., not because they love us and not because they wanted occupation, but because they saw al-Qaeda in Iraq as a worse enemy than us, were the ones who welcomed ISIS back in right. six years later because they said, where were the Americans? You know, we sacrificed everything. We, we, we jeopardized our lives and our integrity to partner with this, uh, with this occupation force, and they just packed up and left, and then they put this, this Saddam light in charge of the country. So there's a very real social political grievance that, that, that drives it. That's why I say, when I look at ISIS, I'm not seeing the marketing. I'm not mm -hmm. seeing the, you know, 72 virgins and the apocalypse in, in Dabiq. 
I'm seeing a very cunning and savvy political calculation. And by the way, and this is why I'm skeptical of where this war is going, you can drive them out of cities, you can drive them out of villages, you can push them back into the desert badlands of Al-Anbar, oh, and, and there. there's, they're still there and they're waiting for when the conditions are right for their return. And they will be. Why? Because, fine, in Baghdad now you have a better prime minister than you had before, but you also, as the unintended consequence of this war, have more Iranian hegemony and oversight, all of these militias, such that e there's even a, an internal Shia debate yeah. between Muqtad al-Sadr and you know the Iranian stooges who are running the other militias. And in Syria, you still have Assad, and you have now every Western country, every Arab country, who yeah. was for Assad's ouster, saying, we have to deal with him, he's here to stay. That's, that's not a, a, a demon that you're going to get rid of or that, that's going to go away and suddenly behave like an angel. But, These are the problems we're going to face. How do you get such smart guests? He knows everything. We hang out together all the time. Let <laughs> uh, me just read it. Tony says, uh, uh, this uh, is before, Panetta. Before, before you, uh, you, you say that, I just want to, yeah. just one quick thing, because this is my role in this show. ISIS, they're not believers, correct? Let me tell you, look. I, I all the followers are not, they don't really know it's true that it's it's almost a cliche that of all the young recruits that have come, especially from the West and even from other Arab countries, you will always find a great number of them who show up and they can't recite one uh, hadith, mm -hmm. one surah from the Quran. They don't know. They know fuck all. Yeah. And ISIS, the first order of business when you join is to have religious indoctrination, even if you are a true believing pious Muslim. Mm -hmm. Whatever you've learned as a Muslim is false. Yeah. It comes from these corrupted and apostate regimes in the Arab world. Therefore, they have to teach you the true Islam. And they, they're making it up as they go along. Yeah. Where they can't find clerics to endorse their, their behavior, whether it's uh, burning other Muslims alive or throwing people off rooftops, they create their own clerisy, which yeah. justifies that. It. That's my problem. One of the problems, and that's why there's a lot of incidents in Europe and stuff like that, because most of their followers are not really true believers or anything. They just follow the ideology of like, they killed us, we'll kill them. Well, yeah, I mean, it, the, the radicalization phenomenon, it, I can write with a crayon, the biography, whenever there's a terror attack, I mean, it's always, okay, this guy was in a gang, or he was committing petty crimes, yeah. wherever the hell he was from, he probably did time in jail, he probably was doing drugs and drinking, trying to lay western girls and not being very successful you know he i can hear you describing right? <laughs> 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 tony said okay you know i can hear you i was, I was reading from hatton's <laughs> wikipedia page <laughs> well in, in my defense they Jeez. tell you the same thing <laughs> so rude <laughs> can't wait till i walk out of the room I, can i just can i just read it because i actually took the trouble to, to, live to from rural new hampshire <laughs> even though it's, it's it's it was it's a you know we, we've left the subject but anyway this is panetta says yeah um, um, uh, to my frustration, the White House coordinated the negotiations but never really led them. Officials there seemed content to endorse the agreement if state and defense could reach one, but without the president's advocacy, I'm going to look at it. Obama. Okay, was but not here's, here's what I say, and you could correct me. I mean, when you look at the invasion of Iraq, really, I mean, I was against it. Don't get me wrong, I'm not a, a, an apologist or anything. But when you look back at it, uh, had they had a plan? And the State Department and the Army War College did have a plan. Had they had a plan to occupy the country after they overthrew Saddam, I don't know that it wouldn't have worked because they had about a year of peace and it didn't get bad. The violence didn't get bad until the Shia got involved, no. which was March, like a year later. That's, no, no. When, that's when it got bad. The first major attacks were led by the Zarqawis, but also he was backed at the time. And this is another point that people forget and it comes to your, your argument about true believers. 
When it looked likely that the U.S. was going to go into Iraq, Osama bin Laden issued this communique in which he said, for the first time, it is okay for the Mujahideen, the Islamic holy water, warriors, to partner with what he called the socialist infidels in bleeding and defeating the great crusader Zionist conspiracy of the United States. What he meant by that was Al-Qaeda should link up with the Saddamists, who are now put out of a job by the United States, to wreak havoc on the U.S. occupation. That is exactly what happened. Uh, I've interviewed U.S. Army intelligence officials in the book who told me from the very early days, the very first big attacks, remember the, the U.N. installation in Baghdad? I don't, I don't remember anything. Okay, I wasn't well, there. In 2004, <laughs> U.N. installation, <laughs> wait, watching the news. Yeah. U.N. installation was hit, the Jordanian told. embassy was hit. Yeah. Zarqawi, with his fledgling jihadist uh, enterprise, they were they were also working with the ex-Iraqi right. military guys who were providing them with the cars and using the chop shops that had been in place from Saddam's time. The two biggest mistakes, and you can't, I mean, I don't, insofar as I do history for this book, I don't try to traffic in counterfactual and say, well, if we did this, then, but I would argue in, in, in hindsight, the two biggest mistakes the U.S. committed af after the one of going in in the first place was debathification and the, and the disbandment of the army, at least the way these things were done. Because people who were employed and were, to some extent, at least by Saddamist Iraqi uh, definition, professional at their job and can do things like patrol checkpoints and guard the borders, suddenly were told, you know, go push a kebab cart and make a living, supporting your wife and three kids and also your seven mistresses. In Fifth Avenue. Yeah. Right. And that was the biggest strategic <laughs> What's mistake. the second one? Debathification, which then, was based on denazification, getting rid of the military. I get, oh, get yeah. rid of the military. So, yeah. so, but this, intertwined essentially. This, you've just come to a question. Paul Bremer. <laughs> no, no, you come to a question which uh, is overlooked all the time. Well, you sometimes I'm embarrassed to bring it up, but it, it really is. I still think worth Tony. People like Tony thinking about. <laughs> so, are you saying then? Do, I mean, if you agree with what he just said, does I, that mean I, that the Iraq war was a mistake or does it mean that the execution of the Iraq war was bungled? Well, which, the, wa which war? Well, it could be both. You no, know. the invasion of Iraq, because okay. it is a difference. In other words, if, if you're saying these are the mistakes we made and if we had well, made We'll it, never know. No, but I'm saying if, if he's right that those are the mistakes that we made. Those are the two big mistakes. Those are two, two big, big mistakes. If we, did, if we mistakes. hadn't made those mistakes, would you then say- and and it actually worked out better. Would you still think that it? In other words, are you saying it was a mistake going to Iraq, or are you saying we screwed it up? I'm saying both actually, but maybe because they're very. No, but they're very. Well, if it's a mistake, then it doesn't matter if we screwed it up. You know, well, but it's, uh, it, well, it's, you know what? Not really. If we had done it, even if it was a bad idea, had we done it correctly and properly? Because I've always okay. wondered, and this is where I think where Christopher Hitchens might have. It's like we we do have an issue in the Middle East, and it does come from. The fact that there is no freedom, that there is that that, that culture, there's no democracies. Like the, we we we, if right. there ever is a solution to this problem, it will most likely come in places where people are living more freely. So it seems to me the intention of wanting to go in there it wasn't for the oil or whatever. The intention of wanting to go in there and transform the Middle East, and I guess we bought into these theories that Iraq was the best candidate for whatever whatever the self they, that that was not the. Uh, the, the the ideology of an evil group of people in the White House. That to me was the ideology of some people who were saying, listen, this is a real problem. We just had 9-11. How are we going to change the Middle East? Well, maybe if we could... Well, but it was a problem it, it, with arrogance and... No, there was arrogance. So we went, so went in there and then ago. they screwed it up. But, but, someone who, so, but somebody who screws it up 
we don't actually say you're evil for screwing it up, but much of it was laid on the Bush administration that it was evil, that this was an evil enterprise and corrupt and with bad motivations. And well, I never believed that. Well, but, but what is the... There, there's two kinds of incompetence committed by the United States abroad. There's the incompetence that winds up on page A1 of the New York Times, and then there's the incompetence that you probably don't read about because it doesn't really affect Americans directly. After 9-11, there was a, a legitimate argument to be had. What has the United States got so badly wrong in its in foreign entanglements, particularly in the Middle East, that can put an end to this kind of hatred and, and jihad. Now, I would argue the genie's already out of the bottle. It's going to be, I mean, I'll be dead before we adequately resolve or, or conclude this, this affair or this conflict. Uh, you're right. I don't see the you Bush administration time? as being, you know, a bunch of mustache twirling, you know, evil Machiavellian imperialists. I see them as being- Even Dick Cheney? I was going to say the same thing. Dick Cheney was a national security hawk who thought, legitimately thought, and still believes Saddam Hussein was a grave national security threat to the United States. Um, to credit him with good intentions would be to say he thought the Iraq war was justified because it would keep America safer. Was it an oil plunder? Did it have to do with how, you know, look, to my mind, having read some of the memoirs that came out of the administration and also some of the postmortem done by the U.S. Army and intelligence, it was a colossal fuck up. There's no question but about why, that. But why did they not listen to the Army War College or the State Department that will need 350,000 troops to maintain them? They, everyone, all the experts said you need more troops to secure the peace. Not all the experts, the though, is the, this is the problem. And, and Rumsfeld and, 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 well, and Wolfowitz. Rumsfeld was, coming, like, Rumsfeld was coming out of a very successful, or at the time, seemingly successful campaign in Afghanistan, which was done uh, you know, by a, a newly uh, technocratic army with a light footprint. Actually, I mean, if you want to give them the benefit of the doubt. Their their idea was, look, we don't want to occupy Iraq the way we occupied Western Europe after World War II. We don't want to be seen as occupiers. We want to go in, we want to knock out this evil Ba'athist regime, and then transfer all power and sovereignty to the people. And in fact, the interim government, they, they told them, speed up your progress, let's get elections going right away, because we don't want to be here for very long. That, to me, is, yes, a form of arrogance, but also naivete, and sort of good intentions run hysterical. Now, all of the intelligence about Saddam, look, Saddam was, was, was writing checks to the families of Palestinian suicide bombers. Saddam had spent decades working cheek by jowl with all manner of jihadist terrorist organizations. But when it came to a practical alliance with Al-Qaeda, the record will show today there was none. Or at least it was not to the extent that was sold by the Bush administration officials. By the way, I've interviewed Bush administration officials who worked in counterterrorism and worked in the Pentagon who told me, we didn't think that the, the, the case was solid, um, but there was a kind of, the, the cliche at the time was the drumbeat, but there was a march to war. We wanted to, as you say, create this sort of beachhead of democracy and freedom. I think that was always the main reason. Yeah, and that, but, that's utopian, right? But uh, Now, uh, the, the utopianism... No, it worked, no, it worked in Japan, it worked in Germany, why can't it work in the Middle East? That, uh, I mean, no. Well, I mean, look, and this comes to your point, can it have been done differently and better? I would argue, sure. Would that have necessarily been successful? I don't know. If Saddam were still in power today, let me just paint this sort of grim portrait of what also kind of happened if, if America hadn't done the mistake that it did make. This is what McCain's argument was. Go ahead. In 2011, you have something called the Arab Spring, which starts after a, a, a food cart vendor sets himself on fire. This eventually sweeps throughout the, the Middle East and all Sunni-majority countries. Uh, it, when it comes to Syria in the spring of 2011, if Saddam were still in power in Iraq, he would have been the principal underwriter and financier of not just the Free Syrian Army, but Al-Qaeda and every nasty comer to try and topple Bashar al-Assad's regime because he hated 
even though they were both Ba'athists, he hated the, the Syrian dictatorship with a passion almost as much as he hated, well, not almost as much as he hated Iran, but he hated them in a mm -hmm. lower order. A lot of this goes back to uh, Arab and Islamic history of the kind of uh, the, the dynamic tension between Baghdad and Damascus as the true heart of the region uh, and the, the sort of uh, Sunni empire. Um, but a lot of it is also just, uh, you know, Assad was aligned with Iran. That's Saddam's mortal enemy. Remember, Saddam was looking for a WMD, not to use against the West, but to use against Iran. That He used chemical weapons against them in the Iran-Iraq war. So there's, there's also a way that this doesn't work out if he's still in power, is what I'm trying to say. And let's not try and make this guy out to be some Jeffersonian Democrat or some beneficent or benevolent dictator. Is he was Saddam? awful. Yeah, and, oh. and I would actually argue, and I do argue in the book, um, if you look at the upper echelons of ISIS, at least as of 2013, 2014, before the U.S. starts knocking these guys out, a lot of them came from Saddam's military intelligence or his Mukhabarat, which is just the catch-all term for all the security services from the Iraqi army. These are guys, who, you know, we call ISIS non-state actors. This bullshit. They were state actors. The people calling the shots, the people planning how to take over terrain, the people who were, who were already forecasting about how to strike the United States with terror attacks and what weapons to use. They, they were trained by the Iraqi security services, which in turn had been trained by the East German Stasi and the Soviet KGB. They were also very good at disinformation and propaganda, which is why so many idiots from all over the world pour in thinking that they're going to find heaven on earth in, mm -hmm. in ISIS-held territory. So the legacy of Saddam, we're still fighting. We're still dealing with, you know, what, 15, 16 years after his, his removal from power. Uh, and that's, a, <laughs> I would argue, that's a very potent and, and toxic legacy, which we probably would have had to reckon with eventually if we had left him alone. But yeah, I, I can't in good faith sit here and say, oh, if only we hadn't debathified and if only we hadn't disbanded the army, it would have all been, some, you know. But here's the thing. Nobody can know. Nobody right. can know. What I guess I'm reacting to, it's bothered me always, is the, the horrible effect of partisanship and what it does to the country such, like I am always, I assume that when somebody's president and the people around him, that they're actually trying to do the right thing. But it seems that's that's not the normal assumption. That certainly wasn't a normal assumption. Like people like they always want to think, oh, there's something. They have an evil. There's an evil intention going on. It's this corrupt. They're they're trying to put money in their own pockets. Well, but wait a and second. It, and, it, and, it, and it and it and it leads to such like I my what I always thought was my checkmate argument against you what? about WMD was look if I'm going to lead the entire Western world into a war in Iraq to find WMD, and I know there's no WMD. You can believe we're going to find WMD. It's like, you know, it's like if I'm a, right. a cop and I'm going to bust in your house to find drugs, I'm going to plant, like, why would they not, if they're, if they're that corrupt already to lead the whole world, why wouldn't they drop some, pl it's, some it's plutonium not, in there? It's not a matter of being corrupt. It's a matter of, they but have a that, certain mindset. That, does, oh. does that argument destroy the idea that, this, that they knew all along there was no WMD? Or not? Because I, th I think clearly they knew that they didn't know there was no WMD. I think legally if they, they, if they I, said I, we I'm don't have it, I'm sure they thought different. they had it. <clears throat> yes, but, but that's but, huge if they thought it because but, because there's forty forty percent of the, the, the probably seventy percent of the Democrat seventy percent of the Democratic Party will tell you they think that Bush lied us into war, if not higher. That's a ter that's terribly dis demoralizing to the nation. Well, he did. It's, he did it's, lie. It, well, it's a lot different than Bush fucked us up into war. Do you think if Lincoln had to account for all the debacles militarily during the Civil War, you know, like people would say, you made a mess of this, you know, it's, it's, it's war. Shit goes bad. You had a certain regime that came in with Bush. Uh, what was the name of uh, the neocons? Uh, uh, 
Center yeah, for New, New American Century, whatever the fuck it, that they all signed. Uh, right? They were all. You're, but you're making my point. Abrams, it all of them. all so personal. They had, a certain, pa- they had a certain uh, uh, mindset going in. I think if, if, that, it, if, it, if Bill Clinton had been facts. president during whatever happened, he might just as well have taken us into the very same war and everything would be reversed and Republicans would be talking how it was wrong. Yeah, and just, also, the, the, the plans for toppling Saddam were moldering on the shelf for years and years and years before we actually went in and toppled them, right? And without 9-11, this would not have happened. Right. Uh, the, the, the United States was absolutely petrified of another terror attack and even more so of a dirty bomb scenario or of state actors aligning themselves with al-Qaeda. We're still petrified. We're still petrified of it. And look, I mean, Bush ran, remember, in 2000. He was the anti-nation building president. He did not want to get involved in, he was like Trump in that respect. He's like, you know, let the world rot. I just care about building up infrastructure, education, and and making America great. So easy to say when you're not the guy in charge. Yeah, and then things changed. And I mean, you know, there's, there was, Cheney, Wolfowitz, but there was also Condoleezza Rice, who was not exactly a, an Iraq war hawk and actually recalibrated the uh, the administration into a more realist posture in term two when she became Secretary of State. There was Colin Powell, who gave a presentation for the UN he didn't believe a word of because he was oh, working. Was... There was Richard Armitage. I mean, there were plenty of people in the administration who thought this was stupid and this was going to end in the calamity that it did. So I, I, I see it as a little more complicated. And you know, look, the best book I've I'm read, seeing it as complicated. I, I, now, and, and by the way, I don't ascribe to, I've been very critical of the Obama administration for its handling of Syria and the region. Do I think Barack Obama is evil or yes? No. No, of I course I just think not. He's, he's being misguided and he's being utopian in his own way. He and thought it was going to work out. He thought it was going to work out. And I do think that some of the people around him didn't give much thought and, and, and pay much attention to it um, and thought, well, look, as long as we're in power, as, as so long as we're unspooling the Bush legacy, We'll have political support. We'll be popular, and that'll be that. And then it'll be on the next guy to, to figure out our mistakes. Um, but you know that again, the overarching theme of of the foreign policy of Obama was, I want to bring Iran in from the cold. I think there will. He said this. In, he said this in three interviews, two of which I can remember offhand. One was with Jeff Goldberg at the Atlantic. The other was with David Remnick in the New Yorker. He said, "Wouldn't it be wonderful if you know this deal with Iran?" led to some kind of re- reconciliation or rapprochement whereby we could create an equilibrium in the region. The Saudis and the Iranians would lie down like lambs and lions and all would be well. Yeah, you know, nice work if you can get it. Unfortunately, it ignores, I mean, not hundreds of years of Middle Eastern history. It just ignores the last 25, right? And 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 the cultural and political dynamics on the ground today that are being propounded by Khomeinist regimes and by, you know, corrupt Arab regimes. And it was a utopian conceit. He doesn't get blamed for it, though, because... Because he's Barack Obama. No, and also because U.S. soldiers didn't die the way they did under Bush, right? If it was on page one of the New York Times every day that Americans were bleeding for this foreign policy... I think it's more than that. I I think you'll probably agree with me. It it is that. But if it was 450,000 dead Syrians when Obama wasn't president... I think you'd be seeing a lot more support for the dead Syrians. I think like only only Nixon can go to China, and only Hillary could probably go to go to uh, you know fight Syria. Well, the, and- the perfect um, sort of anal- or, or, or precedent for that would be under Clinton. There was the Rwanda genocide, yeah, from which grew uh, one journalist called Samantha Power, who wrote a book, A Problem from Hell, and said the United States was an accomplice to genocide, or at the very least, a morally compromised mm-hmm. passive observer of it. And then she goes to work for Barack Obama and stays with him till the, the bitter end, you know, sort of clutching her pearls and wringing her hands at the U.N. about Syria, all the while 
Assad is dropping chemical weapons. And then we cut a deal with Russia and we declare victory and say it was a diplomatic achievement, not a shot fired. And he's, he's decommissioned all of his sarin gas and VX, which turned out to be false. He still has it. And he just dropped it again on them a few months ago, as the UN recently concluded. So again, but it was, you know, anytime you sell diplomacy, peace in our time over war or intervention, even if you fuck it up, even if you get it wrong, you're not going to be blamed for it as much as if you go to war and that becomes a fuck up because yeah. that's American lives at stake. And, and this carries through, like I, I, I thought the main, the main, I'd forgotten this actually, but I remember saying at the time, the main reason I wanted Hillary to win the election was that I felt that only a Democrat can fight the war on terror. That like when there's tough choices to be made, if Trump has to make, they're going to blast him. If he, any kind of surveillance and drone, would Trump be able to kill thousands of people with drone strikes with the impunity that Barack Obama was able to? Never, never. And I, and I, so I want the person with the most latitude, who's not a pacifist like Bernie Sanders or something, to be able to, to make those decisions. That was my take. But I have two more questions for you. How much of this is tribalism? Because in the back of my mind, I, I always think, and this comes to what I was talking about before we started the show about Peter Beinart actually re made me rethink some of my things about the Arab-Israeli conflict. But one thing I can't get past is that when I see such tribalism throughout the Arabic and Persian world, I guess, it's, it's not Muslim because not Indonesia, Malaysia, right? I think which probably, that's probably where most of the Muslims are, right? wouldn't say most of the Muslims, but they've got their own problems now. But, but, but it's like the, the mm -hmm. most populated Muslim country I know is, is Indonesia. Malaysia. But what's going on in the Middle East for as long as I can remember is just tribal brutality dressed up as this organization, that organization, but, but in the end. And, and what are the odds that this tribalism, you talked before about the uh, susceptibility of these people to uh, the propaganda of ISIS. What are the odds that the one tribe they're actually going to now live peacefully with and nicely with are the Jews? It, it, it's, I feel like, and I don't, I don't want it to be bigotry, but, I, but I, I, I want to be disabused of it, that the tribalism among the Arabs is so deep that they will never, ever be able to live side by side with the Jews. Maybe 60% will, but a critical mass will always be there to just make it impossible to bring to bring uh, death and destruction back on their own people because the Israelis will find it intolerable, and and I think that's why it, it's a it just can't ever work out. That's what I'm afraid of. Well, Jared will Jared will fix it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's ridiculous. But so like but like why is Israel so right wing? I don't think Israel's so right wing because they don't want peace. I think Israel's so right wing because. So many people there saw Barack, and they saw Almer go, and 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 they and they saw it just just go to go actually totally backfire and wind up with more dead of their children. And like enough of this. Let's stop being naive. Let's build a wall. Let's be right wing. Well, wait. When a when a when a peaceful Palestinian movement emerges, I think you'll you'll drastically see a change in the Israeli mentality. But I think right now they're just once once. What is it? Once burned, twice. But there's also twice, war crime from that one, side as well. Once bitten, once, twice once, shy. Twice yeah. shy. Yeah. yeah. What's that? Uh, there's also 
Or twice, well, but much, uh, you know what's funny? I thought you guys were agreeing with me. I was like, yeah, we have a. No, so do you think it's? I mean, you're. you're no, a, I know. Arabian. I know. I know what you're saying. You know, but the I, thing you is, watch Lawrence of Arabia. That's what I think. It's like it hasn't changed. I don't know how accurate is historical Lawrence of <laughs> <laughs> Arabia is, but I think that the tribalism is basically correct in that movie, and 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 I think it's that way today. Well, he, he was able to rally the tribes actually against yeah. the empire for a short while. My enemy's enemy yeah, is my they, friend. Well, they, until until the British won. cast him aside, and and. He had to go, you know. Well, actually, you're seeing that today. You're seeing Israel and Saudis cozying up well, now. So that, that was going to be the point I made. Look, I mean, the Arab-Israeli conflict it will be settled, I think, when the patron states of the Palestinian Authority, which include the United States, but also chiefly Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, the Emiratis, when they just basically say, look, we have bigger fish to fry and we're ready to do a more substantive deal. Now, you're right. I mean, you cannot, just as I say that the United States has committed war crimes, Israeli army has committed war crimes the every army is committed the occupation which has now lasted but but decades and decades not not to interrupt but yeah. but just to answer him quickly every army does war crime when it's a war zone you know they living together so it's a little different you're governing the okay. country by the army not I, by, I'm, not I'm by an, the police i'm a, a jew <clears throat> and a descendant of israelis i would love to end the occupation. i know you are i know and but, a lot of people do but number one you can't blame the occupation on Israel. Israel was attacked, not only attacked by Jordan, but attacked uh, when they actually contacted Jordan. Said, "Stay out of this. Don't attack, and we will not. We will not even take Jerusalem." They, they told them specifically. Number one, number two, they offered to give it all back right after the war. No, no, no. The three no's. There is nothing about that occupation which is Israel's fault. To my uh, nothing. You know. Now the question is, how do they unwind from it? The irony of, of that, knows. though, is, I mean, it's true that what was intended to be a buffer zone to, to protect Israel from being taken by surprise again, and this is just the, the case with, with all countries that, that engage in sort of military adventurism or do things on the premise of national security, and then they have a way of kind of spiraling out of control. The buffer zone, um, the architects of it, some of them said that the thing to avoid is what, what was known as superfluous domination. We do not want to govern, we do not want to Arab, occupy Arab land because that's going to be not just deleterious for the Arabs, but also for Israel in the long term, which it indeed has been. The labor governments, um, people like Shimon Perez, who was eulogized until the ends of the earth when he passed away recently, were actually the ones that sort of allowed this buffer zone to grow and increase and expand. And then there was this kind of agreement struck with, I mean, you, you mentioned Haredi and, and ultra-Orthodox before, to go out and colonize and create a sort of biblical holy land in Palestine. Settlements. settlements, right, which are inextricable now from the occupation. But they have, they, that's, that's what I'm not clear on. I'm not pro-settlements. I've, and, but I've never really understood why they have anything to do with the problem because they, were, they had nothing to do with the rejectionism with Barack at Camp David, nothing to do with the rejectionism of, of Olmert when Bush was president. The settlements are not the reason there is not peace in, uh, the, the sure. reason there is not peace is because Arafat, and then I guess it was Abbas, came right to the precipice and then maybe they didn't want to wind up like Sadat. I don't know what their, their reasons were. Well, this was Clinton's argument that, you know, Arafat could not have gotten a better deal and he rejected it at the time. 1994, mm -hmm. was it? Maybe he could have um, gotten a better deal. He should have said, way. I'll do it, but he never put a better deal on the table. The, the, the leadership, I mean, I... Leadership of the Palestinian Authority, this is an undemocratically elected government now controlling, you know, the West Bank, essentially, under Abu Mazen, right? I mean, he hasn't been reelected since, I forget when the last national election was. Uh, it's 
sclerotic, it's corrupt, it's financed by principally the United States and other Western countries. A lot of the people there have become oligarchs. And the good people in the Palestinian political firmament, such as Salam Fayyad, who was prime minister for a time, who actually said, look, um, we don't like the occupation. We certainly don't like settlements. We should boycott any economy coming out of the settlements. But the real issue for us is state building internally. We have bricks and mortar agenda here. Let's build institutions and infrastructure and invite Western companies in so that we'll create a kind of Dubai in the West Bank. And that'll almost be independence, uh, you know, de facto. And then we'll go to Israel. And at the time, it was it was Netanyahu as well, who called for almost exactly this. He wanted what he called economic peace with the Palestinians before a military political peace. Fayyad was meeting him on his own ground. And Bibi was like, well, you know, this guy is no better than the others. And, you know, his call for a settlement boycott is, is tantamount to economic terrorism, yada, yada, yada. I don't think at this point, I mean, look, I, I believe in a two-state solution, although at this point I can't even honestly say I can foresee one in my own lifetime. I think the, the ship for that may have passed. Now, the alternatives are permanent occupation, which I don't think anybody wants to see, or what is now gaining ground in certain quarters is the binational solution, which is essentially merge the two populations never together. Never, and that's ever, never going to happen. Never, I think no. that, I mean, you talk about utopianism, that's, no, that's no, certainly... No. I, 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 I don't think... So, and, but look, the, the, the tragedy for the Palestinians at the moment... It didn't work in Lebanon. It's not going to work in Israel. The tragedy yeah. for the Palestinians at the moment is... How would you handle elections? They're no longer a priority for most of the world, including most of the Arab countries. Yeah. And as you alluded to earlier, yes, there is a kind of creeping... Um, but are they a priority for themselves? Meaning, like, couldn't... If they really would want peace with Israel and say, listen, we've had enough of this, no, non-violence... We want to start with what uh, you offered us the thing, and we want it. these are the changes we want. We're not going to ask for the crazy right of return, which is obviously just like a Trojan horse. And then, and we promise you, let another not another Arab or Israeli die, and let the Palestinian leader come talk at the Knesset like Sadat. You would see the Israeli public if they believed it. And I've told the story many times. My father, my father was kind of a right wing Israeli, and he was initially very skeptical of the whole. Um, Sadat thing. And I remember very vividly when Sadat came and spoke to the Knesset in my bedroom on 280 Riverside Drive and my father started crying because it dawned on him, oh, he, he, this is real. And then you saw him move quickly to the left because Israelis don't want, I mean, you have these crazy Orthodox, but the rest of them, they're Western. You know Israelis. Right. They don't want to send their fucking kids to die in the army anymore over the West Bank. That's, this is what's this is what is so ridiculous. Why can't why would any Israeli, we know Israelis, want to continue to send their kids to die to defend a plot of land? Then these these are not religious people that they're never gonna live in, that show, there's no benefit to them except that it might be keeping them safe. I don't think anybody wanna send their kids to die. No, no, as opposed to forgive me, Palestinians? A, a lot a lot of the Palestinians yeah. who would rather die than have the fucking Jews the, in but, Israel. But they won't send all their kids, some of them. <laughs> <laughs> No, so, so no, that, I'm, I'm, and, I'm and that's the fundamental thing. It's like, like I don't, and and I think, and I, I don't. I hope I'm not being ethnocentric or whatever the word is. And but that is really the way I see it. I don't know a single. Now, of course, it's exacerbated by the fact that Israel has a terrible political system, at least terrible for for the situation that in where you have small little crazies that have undue influence, and we can only speculate what Netanyahu's policies would be if he had a, an American-style chief executive where he didn't have to answer to the small parties. I suspect it would be more accommodating, but I don't know that. Actually, I'm going on what Dershowitz said, who claims he's had conversations with Populations them. change over time. And yeah, I mean, has there been a kind of coarsening or calcification of the Israeli 
society and, and after two intifadas. The first was fought with rocks, the second with, with Semtech bombs, blowing up discos and pizza parlors and buses. Absolutely. Has there been a rightward lurch in that country? Yes. Has there been a rightward lurch almost everywhere on the planet, including in our own country? Yes. Um, again, look, I don't, I don't have a no, no, nobody you know, and, and like I say, I, you know, I'm not, I haven't studied the Israel-Palestine issue in, since I started getting involved in the Syrian conflict, but I cannot. It hasn't faith, changed. Say, it hasn't changed. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But, I, but, but you know, back then I was. Are a little you going to settled? <laughs> back then I was a little more optimistic because I was seeing, and it's true. I mean, they did not have a huge political constituency and a sort of grassroots or groundswell kind of movement behind them. But in people like Fayad, you had pragmatists who everybody could do business with. I mean, the Americans loved him. The Israelis actually trusted him with the money, and he was the only political leader that, that did. He was prime minister, so it's, it wasn't like a, a low-hanging portfolio. And if I were in Barack Obama's shoes, rather than premise a peace deal on a moratorium on settlement expansion, and I believe the settlements are illegal and I think that they're part of the problem, but just based on the sort of horse trading nature of the conflict, I would have said, this is going to be our guy. We're going to make him untouchable, and he is going to be the Rudy Giuliani of Ramallah. He is going to clean up the streets. He is going to invite corporations in to build infrastructure and invest and give people jobs and make people... That would have been, to me, a much more sensible way forward. And the Israelis could not ignore that. That's the thing. Yeah. That would have met Bibi on his own ground in a way that he simply could not say, well, they're all, you know, never they only long. understand I, violence. I, I, nevertheless, and I, and I think you're right. Nevertheless, it comes down to me to one question, was, is that when a boss wakes up in the morning and he's thinking about what I'd like to accomplish. Is it, I want, I want two free states living side by side, or is it, how do I just continue to play this game of looking like, I, but I'm not, but the, the end game is, yeah. we, we got to wait till we have a position to get rid of Israel. Is, is he in his own mind, does he, is he really honestly working towards a two-state solution? No. I'm afraid, he, well, you say no. I'm afraid he's not. And if he's not, then all this talk of blaming the Israelis well, the, is misplaced. Yeah. Well, there's two things. You know, the first thing is something that you always said, not in this episode, but other show. you know. That's, uh, that's not to say that the mistreatment of the Palestinians is excused no, no, on the Israelis' yeah. no, part. I'm coming, that's a whole other issue. No, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm coming, yeah. don't yeah. worry. So the first thing is, like you said, like the problem from the Arabic side is you can have a leader that will agree with everything and mean it, you know, with Israel and peace. And then the minute that person dies, everything that you agreed on is going to change, you know. So you don't trust that it's, it's a mentality, you know. So that's the first thing. And the second thing from the Israeli side, that you forget the beginning. That you want to be like, okay, let's forget about everything that happened in the past and let's start again. Like if somebody came and take over New York right now, you know, for example, like the Russians, you know. And took took over New York, and then a hundred years from now, it says like, "Listen, we'll take the West Listen, Side. We'll give you the East Hatem, Side." Hatem. This is how fights end. Fights end when people say okay, lose war. No, they say, "Let's forget about the past. Let's move on. How do we settle this?" That you can't. No, I understand what you're saying, but, it, but I'm talking. The past I, doesn't matter to resolve. But it. I'm trying to explain to you the mentality yeah. of the Arabs and the Jews. Oh, I get it. You know, the Arabs say like, "Let's try to make a new past." Then. Let's try to win as much as we can, and then we do it. But I think I, I'm actually optimistic. But I think that it's going to happen when all the old school and war heroes die, and the new generation take it's, over. 
as long as Netanyahu is built on and, history. Huh? Look, you know, it's funny. The, 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 I mean, the, if you were if you were an eighteen year old uh, conscript in the IDF under Kaslad, you got a long ways to go before you're dead. That's the problem. You keep having war. You get you keep producing war heroes. Or, or but yeah, and, no. Can, can I, I tell you the irony yeah. that comes to my mind is I wouldn't. You kind of like what we tried to do in Iraq. Yeah, I feel like that's what we need. For the Palestinians, like if but, they well, had free elections, free press, but, free information. That's another point that I want to tell then you. Then they that, might be ready to make peace with you, Israel. You keep saying free, free, free. First of all, what, what we wanted to do in Iraq was, and correct me if I'm wrong, the main goal was we thought that Iraq is going to be divided into five countries. You know, Sunni, Shia, Kurds, all that. And then that way they can each have their own country, do their own thing. But instead they stay together fighting, obviously. But they stayed together. Am I right or wrong? Wrong. They didn't want. In fact, it was the opposite. The Americans did they not take want that part to off, see. <laughs> Biden wanted it. Biden wanted a partition. Yeah, they right. want. He they want. No, but he, he wasn't in power solution. at that no, point. No, so later on. Yeah. Les Gelby wrote an essay calling for the the tripartite. No, I th I think they did. They did want it too. No, they 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 spared no expense to try and keep Iraq a unified, cohesive state uh, from Iraqi Kurdistan, which is in, in a sense its own. It's country. Thing, yeah. I mean, it's an autonomous zone protected by U.S. power going back to the 90s. Are they Muslims, the Kurds? Yes, yeah. but, uh, well, actually, it, another myth of the Middle East is they're always seen as secular. Actually, a lot of people who joined ISIS were, were Kurds, but Kurds, that's another, yeah. another story. Anyway, um, no, yeah. and in fact, right now, you have this call for Kurdish in, or Iraqi Kurdish, Kurdish independence, which the U.S. and Iran and Turkey... And every other country is fanatically against because they don't want to see Iraqi Kurdistan break no, away. No, they don't want to see the Turks. It. Right. Well, actually, yeah. And, and, but what's weird is the Turkish relationship with Erbil, which has changed since we went to war in Iraq. Also another story. But no, it was, it, America has always said, we want to keep the nation states as conceived after the First World War intact. They say that about Syria, even though uh, that ship has sailed and that, that will never be a, a cohesive yeah. country ever again. Uh, and whenever you had any kind of attempt at balkanization or you had these competing nationalisms, America tried to, to, to you know, put, tamp it down. Tamp it down. Um, but again, I, I don't see how Iraq might still maintain the same borders in under international law. But what we are going to see in on the ashes of ISIS and Iraqi Kur or Kurdish independence is only the start, a land grab. Yeah. Um, I mean, the first thing the Peshmerga did when they booted ISIS out of you know areas in in uh, you know north of the green line they made a play for kirkuk to take it militarily why for them that's their jerusalem but also it's got a lot of oil yeah you know and and we're going to see that repeat itself i mean the, the shia militias are doing the same thing under the supervision of iran sunnis who are disenfranchised and dispossessed are going to eventually wake up and say okay now that dash is defeated where's our share of the pie and yeah. if the political situation does not improve and iraq remains one of the worst cases of corruption in the world and they don't have the resources to rebuild cities like Ramadi and Falut. Again, it's the return of the revenge of history. Yeah. We're, we're out of time, but very quickly, you're also a Russia expert? I don't, I'm not an expert on anything. I'm a journalist, so I like investigate things that interest me, and I write stories. You're into Russia? I'm into Russia. Okay. Uh, uh, <laughs> I have a great question I, I about Russia. I have a question, too. Oh, go, ahead, go ahead. I'm sorry, guys. I don't, I don't want to keep him too long, but go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, He's not going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, my... my one of the interviews that I really like when you talk about sanction, you said the best way is not to sanction the country, but to sanction the people. You know, the money that they the own outside. Yeah. yeah. So can you can you touch on that? Because I think that's brilliant. Yeah. I mean, my favorite canard of, of the election, which actually began with Russian state media and then was picked up by the Trump campaign, was, you know, World War Three, right? 
Hillary Clinton gets elected or if America does anything aggressive with respect to Russia, it's World War III. Yeah. U.S. intervention in Syria, World War III. Uh, America arms Ukraine, World War III. I'll start worrying about World War III when senior officials in the Kremlin start pulling their kids out of boarding schools in Switzerland and London and mm -hmm. start closing down their bank accounts with Citibank and Credit Suisse. This is not like the Soviet period. The money in Russia does not stay in Russia. It goes outward. Why? You can't live the kind of life these corrupt oligarchs and, and government officials want to live inside their own country. So they go to the West. Mm -hmm. And that's why they're so reliant on us and our economic institutions and our financial services. So yes, the way to hit them where it hurts is not sanctioning companies or even necessarily uh, state oil and, and, and gas enterprises, but going after the personal fortunes of the people at the top and also the personal fortune of Vladimir Putin. Mm -hmm. The reason, and there's a very compelling argument made in a new chapter of a very good book called Red Web, which is the history of Russian cyber warfare, was written at a time when this wasn't going to be as hot of a topic as it is now. But the new chapter talks about the Trump-Russia scandal from the Russian side. Yeah. And one of the arguments that the authors make is that after the Panama Papers were released, which, re I mean, didn't show Putin's personal wealth per se, but people around him, like mm -hmm. one of his closest friends, Sergei Roldugin, who's a concert cellist, who is an on-paper billionaire, which I don't think you can become. He's a, he's a very good cellist. Yeah. <laughs> so essentially, you know, he's a bag man for Putin's money. You know, yeah. I, I give you a job or I keep you yeah. protected and you hold a couple of hundred million dollars. And, and play the cello. And play the cello. play the cello. Which, by the way, he did in Palmyra when the Russians helped uh, the Syrian regime retake Palmyra. It was Roldugin oh. who was conducting, I think, or playing the cello. Whatever. Okay. That's anyway, you can sneak more okay. money Putin, in a cello Putin than Putin saw the Panama Papers as a CIA State Department orchestrated conspiracy against Russia to go after his personal fortune. That was the reason, according to the authors of Red Web, that he decided to hack the election. And is he to the go richest man in the world? I would say it's it's very likely that he is. Well, actually, what I you just said actually lines up with something that I've been saying, although I think you're going to disagree, that I actually, I feel like, uh, I've said this on the show a million times already, so they're going to start rolling their eyes, but they're never going to leave Crimea. The no. Russians. The never. only the only uh, circumstances under which they would leave Crimea is if there's another 1991 moment and there's either a revolution or some cataclysm in Moscow that changes the government, and the Ukrainians basically say now's our chance, and the Russian military doesn't respond. That could well, well happen. Well, no, I, mean, I, I, I think the Korean War might occupy some of their. Uh, no, no, <laughs> I'm gonna tell you why. why they, because because the, the the Crimeans are are Russians, and it was always. As opposed to everything else in Ukraine, which it always was Russia. There's a Russian. High, high proportion or percentage of ethnic Russians in Crimea, but don't believe any statistics or, or sort of plebiscites taken on the on the peninsula about where they want to be, meaning in the Russian Federation. Well, they'll want to be wherever their standard of living is better, I guess. Which is not very yeah. good right now. Crimea has become sort of a gangster land 2.0, um, another Russian Federation. And not to say that U Ukraine is right. any great shakes in itself. But look, I mean, Crimea was was given to Ukraine. Actually, didn't Ukraine didn't want it at the time. Yeah, but it wasn't Christian. even really given to Ukraine. It was all the Soviet Union. Right, it, it was, was all the Soviet it, Union. On paper. It was, it was just a ceremonial thing. That's but my point. But after it was 1991, all... you had a, a series yeah. of international agreements and treaties that were written up. We had the Budapest Memorandum, which said if Ukraine gives up its nuclear stockpile, we will protect it. Right. Which so, we didn't but do. Leaving, I, I understand. And, and so, yeah, I mean, if you had to make the legal case, you'd say that the Russians are wrong. But in real politics, this is their outlet to the sea. They consider it was always Russia. They're never going to give it up. So then the question in my mind has always been, if they're never going to give it up, 
what is the end game with these sanctions? Because sanction, to me, sanctions until they leave Crimea are sanctions forever. And this, and sanctions forever, is a destabilizing tit-for-tat game where, okay, they're kind of weak these days, so what can they do with, like, disproportionate... They don't, they don't have the... So, hey, let's hack the election. So yeah. it's, it seems to me... That's what they did. Right. So, so like, why, why wouldn't they? We're, 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 we're pinching all their rich people. Like, what, what, what are they just going to sit there and take it? Yeah, we deserve it. They, they sit in the room and say, what can we do? Yeah. We, how do we get even with these fucks? The, the taking of Crimea and then the invasion of the Donbass... I mean, Putin is testing the resolve of the West, right? There's actually a, a good line which Hillary Clinton stole. It's in the, the new interview with David Remnick in The New Yorker where, you know, I think she's, she's quoting Lenin, of all people, not John, but Vladimir. Um, <laughs> and she says, you, when you plunge a blade into something, if you encounter mush, you keep going. When you hit steel or something hard, that's when you stop. Putin encountered mush, so he kept going. Uh, sanctions have actually, in a weird counterintuitive way, been a blessing for certain Russian officials who have, as a result of being sanctioned, been protected as loyalists to the regime. People who would have been liquidated or cast out uh, as, as traitors, according to Putin, were given a new lease on life because the U.S. decided to go after them economically. The, the intended uh, consequence of it, which is the business class and the oligarchs, all the people who control the money in Russia, would abandon ship and, and leave Putin off on his own that didn't happen but even um, if they did that putin's not pulling out of crimea they're not putin leaving is crimea. not pulling out of crimea yeah. but again at some point putin will die i mean a lot of people nobody's said, pulling out of crimea a lot of people said that the collapse of the soviet union and the rise of independent nation states in the, the former warsaw pact uh, soviet sphere was impossible in 1960 and look what happened 31 years later so i, I wouldn't well, not you, say i mean I you never you can, say never on you this. can hope for a lightning strike but i mean there's there's no no you can just say history is unpredictable and we don't know okay. what's going to happen but this but this is in their fundamental interest and isn't wouldn't the the best idea for the world would be some some sort of like kennedy deal with the missiles in in turkey whatever to say okay we're gonna lower the sanctions you keep Crimea. We agreed. No more hacking. You know, like some sort of some some sort of big but, but deal. And they talk about it, so in exchange for what? Then what do we get out of it? They're uh, they're standing down on all this cyber warfare, all this hacking. Wherever else they are causing mischief against us. I don't they, know all. They the don't even cop to having done it. See, I mean, they how don't need can they, to. Yeah, but w would you trust them if they said yes? We'll stand down. Trump said we should have a a, a bilateral commission or some kind of joint cyber security entity between the United States and Russia, which is like going to the... No, the that's insanity. Well, that, yeah, but that, yeah. but that's what it would entail. You know, there would have to be some kind of cooperation. Would I trust sides. them? Possibly if... I mean, we, we trusted them in, in, our, in, in much more serious deals like, you know, nuclear weapons and stuff. I would trust them if uh, this, the, the sanctions could snap back. And I mean, they have... Are we natural enemies with Russia? Like... No, not with Russia. With this particular government... Yes, it is. It is driven. There is only one ideology to Putin. If, if we hadn't been messing in Ukraine and trying, well, we to... weren't messing in Ukraine. This is another myth. Well, that... you know what, what happened in Ukraine? An agreement that Viktor Yanukovych, who was aligned with Putin, ran for election on the association agreement with the European Union. Ran literally the the, the party pendant of of uh, the party of regions, his party in Ukraine was side by side on billboards and in placards with the European Union flag, right? Because this was part of the, the campaign promise. We're going to sign this agreement. The U.S. said, great, we had really nothing to do with it. 
people leading the, the, the charge from the European side was Poland and Sweden. He goes back on his word. People take to the streets as a result of one Facebook post, actually written by an Afghan, a refugee from Afghanistan who moved to Ukraine after the war. And you all of a sudden have a protest movement, brutally suppressed by the president of Ukraine and his thugs and his police force. Protest movement becomes a revolution. The United States was always, from day one, about tamping down the violence, trying to make this whole thing, namely Euromaidan, the name for the revolution, go away. So the U.S. was party to, along with uh, the European Union, an agreement to hold early elections, which Yanukovych himself signed. And Russia, although their representative did not sign the agreement, was also party to. What happened? Yanukovych fled like a rat in the night to Russia, absconding with millions, probably tens of millions of dollars and money that was largely stolen from the Ukrainian people. Russia then seizes Crimea in a near bloodless coup, but a coup nonetheless. The first time a major power has annexed invaded European soil since World War II. I mean, it really, some of these analogies to, you know, the, the Anschluss and the third, they're not all that hyperbolic no, when you look you. at the I history of it. And then does everything it can to whip up separatist sentiment in the East when that fails, when there's not a spontaneous uprising like they had hoped, start sending in every international ruffian and gangster and veteran from the wars in Georgia and Chechnya and the Balkans to essentially create a kind of Somalia in East Ukraine, which is what they've effectively done. It's not just Crimea. There's also a war raging in the Donbass on the, the, the Russian border side. Yeah. These were not things the United States wanted. The United States was always about de-escalation. For Barack Obama, Putin was a regional power player, and all the United States has to do is get on with him transactionally. That was what the reset was about, deproliferation, uh, reducing nuclear stockpiles, which the Russians have cheated on, by the way. Oh, it was about getting the Russia, Russia into the World Trade Organization, which didn't really produce any dividends for Russia, much less other countries that are party to the WTO. It was all just quid pro quo. Putin, at every turn, yeah. took advantage of what he perceived to be the United States' weakness vulnerability or simple lack of defense. And I mean, again, look at the reporting that's been done on when we knew they hacked the election and what the response was. Crickets, right? Mitch McConnell had a hand in it because he threatened the administration, don't go and say anything about this or we're going to brand you as partisan to Hillary and trying to deliver the White House to her. But also the administration horribly played this. And they didn't, they didn't think it was going to be a big deal because they just assumed the Democratic nominee was going to win. It was a huge deal. This was the greatest intelligence operation ever perpetrated by Moscow against the United States. Yeah. Okay. And that's saying a lot if you know your Cold War. Yeah, no, I don't know. I don't know the facts as you do, but I remember reading certain things and, and, and gleaning big, big concepts. Uh, essentially, I, I think we and the West were poking around in Putin's backyard, some from his point of view, and uh, where some people like Kissinger's would say, let Ukraine stay as kind of a, a buffer state between don't try to suck it into NATO or the European Union this or whatever a, it is. I, I have to object to that. You know, Please. The, the idea that we are forcing Ukraine's hand or Not we're forced. somehow engineering the population to believe one set of beliefs over another. There's no such thing as being sucked into NATO and the EU. Joining these two organizations is a Herculean task. Ask the countries that recently did. Ask the Baltic states, which got their chance in 2004, and now say, thank God we did, because otherwise we'd all... I'm going to have to read about this so I can, I can no, no, debate no. you on it. it. Ukraine has got a sovereign right to run its own affairs and to run its own country. We do not force our will on them. Okay, for Putin, though... Well, we have a Monroe Doctrine, right? We don't have a Monroe Doctrine. Well, we used to have a Monroe Doctrine. 
in the 19th century, yes, when well, I, I Russia think, had a czar. I mean, I think we still have a Monroe Doctrine. I mean, uh, don't we? I mean, I don't know if it's ever written out, if Monroe ever written out, but we still, if Russia started uh, poking around in Mexico, even today, we'd be like, no, this well, is our part of the, the world. Russia poked around plenty in the United States, and we were sort of like, eh, well, no we, big deal. They, they put missiles in Cuba. and We put Jupiter missiles in Turkey. No, I'm saying, but it's about as vis-a-vis the Monroe Doctrine, we didn't. They were not allowed, and and we fought them in Central America. We, you know, we we said, you know, we we felt that they had no right to be poking around here. Yes, Cuba has a sovereign right. Yes, uh, El Salvador, they all have sovereign rights, but we didn't see it that way. There's, I, I don't know enough about Ukraine, so I I should probably just shut up. But I but I read at the time enough people who did know about it to know that what I'm saying is not ridiculous. If that sounds like a no, I mean, look, you mentioned yeah. Henry Kissinger. Henry Kissinger is the manager of Kissinger Associates, a consultancy, a global consultancy that doesn't have a website and doesn't list its clients. Now, if you were to find out tomorrow that the Russian government was one of his clients, would that somewhat distort or color your view on Henry Kissinger's uh, appraisal of geopolitics? In the it, I, I, not necessarily. Certainly would mine. No, I, I, it certainly might be, but it's also possible that he's also calling it straight. You know, I, I don't know. Look, I mean, his counterpart on the left was this big Brzezinski. It's like Halliburton and Cheney. Like, yes, but I, I don't believe that's why Cheney did it. I, I mean, yeah. It's, uh, I mean, it's I, a happy coincidence, that's for sure. What's that? <laughs> How, making, a, making all that money. You know, the United, I, in 1991. He didn't make it. He wasn't still part of Halliburton. The, the collapse yeah. of the Soviet Union could have gone off way worse than it did, right? That was another near miss of history. The phrase that, that resonated at the time, and actually the first George Bush deserves a lot of credit for his handling of it, was a Europe whole and free. One of the best presidents ever, right? Europe, actually an underrated president. And you know who said that? Barack Obama, and he was right. Europe whole and free included the Baltic states, Ukraine, Poland, Georgia. These are all countries that had the right to self-determination. These are all countries that had the right, at their choosing, to subscribe to every kind of supranational organization or treaty. Many of them did. Georgia wants to join NATO. We're the ones saying not now and probably never because we don't want to offend your friends in Moscow. I mean, you know, this idea that America is this colossus bestriding the world and imposing our will on other nations. Yeah, there are examples of us doing this. I mean, we talk about Iraq. Well, we can do revolution at the end of a bayonet. We just need the Army Corps of Engineers over here, some oil deals over there, and suddenly, you know, everyone will be dancing to Taylor Swift and eating apple pie. <laughs> Folly, naivete, stupidity. Yeah. But when it comes to Europe, I mean, it just it, it doesn't wash. It's just not the history. All right. Okay, let me ask you this question. And you're, you're wrong about the Shia, by the way, but, but okay. Wrong uh, about the Shia. Well, I mean, if you look at the violence in Iraq after the invasion, they had about a year until it really exploded. Just I didn't say the Shia weren't committing the violence. I said no, this, but, but, it but started with Sunni Jihad. Oh, I know, but it, it didn't really explode until the Shia got into it. Yeah, because the goal of the Zarqawis was to foment a sectarian civil war by going after the Shia, knowing that they would then radicalize and weaponize and come after the Sunni. And that's exactly well, they, what happened. Well, they went after the United States military. Too. They did that's that too, yeah. absolutely. But here's my question. What's going on with uh, uh, Saudi Arabia and uh, Qatar? What is uh... It's not about uh, financing terrorism. It's about, uh, well, it's about two it's things. About Al Jazeera? That's part of it. But uh, no, actually, it's about Qatar is seen by Saudi Arabia as a pipsqueak nation that, that plays well beyond its means and interferes in all the countries that Saudi Arabia has the exclusive right, according to the Saudis, to interfere in. Right. Um, not just... Uh, 
Syria, not just um, Yemen, but also in Libya. The, the Qatari interference in Libya post-Egypt, post-Gaddafi, post is, is actually an underreported phenomenon, but he talked to a lot of Libyans, and they say they, they've, this country's helped fuck things up. Qatari support for the Muslim Brotherhood and Islamist groups, including, by the way, um, helping, at least indirectly, Jabhat al-Nusra, which was the Al-Qaeda franchise in Syria until it rebranded and changed its name and claimed no longer to be Al-Qaeda, although that's not true, it's still Al-Qaeda. This has really exercised the Saudis. Now, you might sit here and say, well, why do the Saudis care if they're helping Muslim radicals? I mean, the Saudis are Muslim radicals. They've been helping them for years. Yes, but it's actually true that after 9-11, there was a recalibration, at least within the senior ranks of the uh, Saudi royal family, to put an end to this because they realized that they had, had nearly cooked their own goose with the United States, and they actually did start cracking down. In fact, they have just started rounding up clerics in Saudi Arabia that they claim are fomenting jihadism and Islamist ideology. So Saudi, I mean, if you look at the groups they support in Lebanon, the March 14 coalition, secular, pro-American. In Syria, despite what you're going to read on some, certain fringe websites and, and Twitter feeds, um, the main groups that they've been backing That's are... That's all he reads. <laughs> yeah, but the main groups they've been backing are, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call them moderate in the sense, you know, they're guilty of human rights abuses and war crimes, but I would call them more nationalistic than the groups that Qatar and even Turkey to some extent has been supporting. So this rivalry is basically Saudi Arabia trying to put Qatar in its place. And Al Jazeera, they consider to be part of the problem. Right. Al Jazeera hosts Yusuf al-Qaradawi, who's a very influential cleric in the Sunni Muslim world, who's called for jihad in Syria, and prior to that said such charming things as, we must finish the work of Hitler when it comes to the Jews. Um, he's endorsed beating one's wife, albeit not too severely that she becomes incapacitated or crippled, but you know, a few well, yeah, slaps about the face. <laughs> Gentlemen, we, we have to end. <laughs> All right. The world's problems are not solvable in one hour podcast. I thought That's we did true. a pretty good job. Actually. I think I think yeah. we're done. We, I, I we just, made I, some headway. I, you know, you, you know the famous column that Kissinger, famous, the, fam the big column that Kissinger wrote about Ukraine, is Washington Post, 2014. Oh. I just I just looked it up. It seems pretty reasonable to me. Maybe you get a chance to read it, see what you think. Okay. Well, uh, doesn't sound like he doesn't, he doesn't read like a shill for the Russians to me. No. He's pretty critical of the Russians. Go ahead. I read so, in an apartment in Odessa for a week once. That's all. Nice <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so well, much. Michael, would you like to share your information, Twitter or uh, contact? No, I don't somebody? want anybody following me on Twitter. Nobody <laughs> follows problems in my life. <laughs> nobody follows Michael on Twitter. We'll uh, but just one one small correction to your lovely introduction. I'm no longer the Daily Beast. I'm now full time at CNN. Full time CNN. Yeah. So All you right. can hate on me there. Yes. So you can follow him at CNN. The Trump, the uh, the, the Clinton News Network. No, the fake news. Fake network. The fake news network. <laughs> right. I'm not in the fake news department though. They're not in the fake news department. Yeah. All right. <laughs> that's on the fifth floor. <laughs> Tony? Good. What? What do you want? Do you want your Twitter or you don't want to be followed? Yeah, follow me on Twitter, you bastards. Do you, do you, know, do you know that the Trump <laughs> tax... Tony Darrow. And the, 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 the Trump tax uh, uh, reform, whatever the package, as as they keep talking about it and paring it down, whatever it is, looks like it's going to benefit like me and only me. This pass through of um, see how that worked out. It's just unbelievable. I, I mean, Hillary I, I, never would have done I, that. I listen all the, the reasons to want to support this guy never occurred to me. They're going to treat people who have S corps like small small businesses who have S corps. Where, I'm an S corp. 
Yeah, but, but it's you funny have, when you but, said but, that, I thought you said escorts, and I'm like, well, that makes escorts. sense. Yeah. I'm doing that. But it won't cover you because you're, you're probably a service because you you charge for your own services. But I am an employer, an escort employer, and they're going to exempt service escorts, and that they're going to, in other words, I'm going to get charged at the lower rate. Uh, it's going to pass through to me. But and he's talking about raising Thanks, the rates on the wealthy, like it's uh, it's really like pro business. Nice. It's yeah, we'll see. No awesome. One, no wonder why you <laughs> why you defend it. I, all I the just time. really guys, it was just happening now, like in real time. I'm like, oh my god! I like, they, I I never I never thought it would actually happen. It still has to get, you know, written and. I know, I know, it's a long yeah. way off, but but we can hope. Yeah, Stephen, <laughs> uh, follow Chinabria, China Bria B R I A. I want to say it's a great thing every week to come and share my uh, insights. <laughs> 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 That's very true. And uh, comedyseller.com and live from America podcast.com and live from America, from America at comedyseller.com. Comedyseller.com. Okay. And good night. Good night. You were listening to Live from America podcast. To contact us, please go to www.livefromamericapodcast.com. Brought to you by the Comedy Seller and Rethink Production. 